are so thankful that you have decided to join us once again as we delve into scripture and we look at what God is trying to tell us through this wonderful epistle, a letter of love written to the Hebrews. And we're going to talk about Jesus as our brother today, but before we do that, can I invite you to pray with me? God, amidst all of the uncertainty, we do have something that we can plan to ourselves firmly on. And that is the realization that you are the author and consumer of our faith. And so we thank you for that faith, that faith that can serve as a respite, as a place of refuge amidst the windstorm gales that we are facing. We pray that you bless us, that you bless our conversation, and that through our time together, we might just get a clear picture of who you are, but more importantly, how much you love us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. That fantastic author and pastor to us all, Eugene Peterson, talks about a particular story that happened with him during his childhood. Now, Peterson, as most of you know, is probably well-renowned for his translation of the Bible in a way, in a language that is useful for us all. But before he wrote the message, he grew up in a small town in Montana. Peterson tells us that for most of his childhood, he was cloistered, protected from the world and the pain and the privation and the stark realities that it has. That was until he went to school. Upon his first day at elementary, he met Garrison Johns. Now, Garrison was a neighbor of sorts to Peterson. His family lived but a couple hundred yards away from the Peterson farm. And Garrison was known as the school bully. He dressed in uh, linen and denim shirt, uh, regardless of the season. Peterson exuded this characteristic that most people identify with Christians, this ability to turn the other cheek, as it were. And perhaps because of this, Garrison targeted him from the beginning. Now, every day during that first year, the older boy would wallop Eugene. He would come home bedraggled, black-eyed, bruised, and his mother would always tell him, now, Eugene, you know what the Bible says. You have to pray for him. You have to turn the other cheek. You have to love those who persecute you. After all, this has been the way of Christ for over 2,000 years. Now, Eugene's mom and my mom must have talked because this is the same type of advice I would get when I was being bullied. But unlike me, Eugene was a strong boy. He had worked in the farm with his father since he could remember it, and so he had this fountain of power and strength just welling up inside him. One particular day, as it had happened always, Garrison decided to again start picking on Eugene. There was friends and children nearby, and the bully always did better with an audience. He started to push and prod at the future pastor, and then something happened. Something clicked, something snapped inside of Peterson. He realized, much to his delight, that he was stronger than Garrison. He threw him down, pinned him on the floor, started punching him. As blood began to run down, Garrison's nose, Eugene looked at him defiantly and said, say uncle, say uncle. The shred of dignity and pride left. Garrison said no. And then Eugene decided to change tactics. He said to himself, I need to use this moment for Christ. And so he began to taunt Garrison and say, tell Say out loud, tell me that you believe in Jesus. Tell me that you believe in Christ. Say that you accept him as your savior. 
After a couple more hits, Garrison finally acquiesced, and that was Eugene's first convert. The story is told in his phenomenal and seminal book, Christ in 10,000 Plays. But the reality of the experience is that often Christianity, this experience of believing in a Savior, a Savior that has come to do a, this work of redemption, is often followed by commands that force other people into a relationship with Jesus. We sit on the proverbial chest of people we wish to introduce our Savior to when we say, believe in God. And then we're shocked. We are shocked because people begin to divorce themselves from religion. People begin to relate Jesus with oppression and abuse. People begin to think that religion and faith is somehow toxic. And the author of Hebrews will have none of it. In his sermon to a congregation that is trying to find its place in a society that knows how to use religion to separate and coerce, he presents Jesus as a different kind of character. I'm going to just guide you through his attempt at casting Christ in a different light. So if you have a Bible with me, can you open and together shall we read the second chapter of the epistle? I want to just focus with you on the first seven verses. We must pay the most careful attention, the author writes, therefore to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. So in essence, at the outset, as he begins to deliver what will be the body of his sermon, the author of the epistle wants to make sure that your faith remains. He wants to make sure that you continue to confess Christ. How is he going to do that? Well, I'm sure the temptation is there to embark on an evangelistic effort that mirrors young Eugene's. But instead of that, look at what he says. He says, for since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience just received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced for the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. But how is he going to buttress his point? How is he going to cement us in his faith? How is, we go how is he going to ensure that we continue to confess Jesus? Verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. Now he's going back. Reaching back and talking about that beautiful song that the psalmist writes. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. And to this collective promise of triumph that is offered to all mankind, the author will weave the story of Jesus, the Christ that we are called to confess. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. And now the kicker. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might test death for everyone. What is the author saying? The author is saying that we can see Jesus who experienced death, so that by his experience of death, we do not have to taste the grave. It is this movement, he will continue to say, that it brings sons and daughters to the glory of God. It is by this, by this move that he is elevated beyond the angels. It is by this move that we can say that now Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Nowhere do we hear judgment. Nowhere do we hear the author of the epistle asking his audience in the congregation to cower in fear for Jesus is to return. Nowhere do we hear that we are sinners, as Cotton Mather preached once, in the hands of an angry God. Nowhere do we hear about violence. There is no, not one hint of 
fear that grounds the author's sermon. Which is why it's so striking that in light of who Jesus is, in light of this God that has experienced ultimate pain and death so that we might not need to, we continue peddling the gospel of fear. I don't know where it started. Maybe it was with Anselm. Anselm who attempted to coalesce every theory, every idea, every notion we have about how we are saved. He coined his theory of atonement satisfaction and said that Jesus' death was a penalty that needed to be paid. A ransom that needed to be extended to Satan. Critics will argue that the problem with ransom theory is that it sets a dualistic notion of how the world is. A shadow side to creation. An enemy that must be placated. But even worse than divine ransom theory is Ansem's notion of satisfaction. The idea that the death of Jesus wasn't a ransom for the devil, but rather was done to satisfy the honor of God. That our loving father needed blood, needed somebody to pay the price. One of Anselm's contemporaries, the great French theologian Peter Abelard, thinking about this idea of Christ as our brother, decided to think about the possibility of something else. Instead of having God sitting on our chest, making us look at the gruesome spectacle that is the cross, punching us emotionally, saying, will you follow me? Abelard chooses to coin cross and crucifixion as the ultimate example of God's love. To be sure, Abelard's story is one of tragedy. Abelard, who fell in love with one of his two T's, Eloise. Abelard, who struggled with guilt because as a churchman, he couldn't be married. Abelard, who began to champion the rights of women and the intellect that theologians have when they are blessed with femininity. Abelard, who married in secret, Abelard, who named his firstborn the name of a navigation device in the 11th century. Abelard, Abelard, who saw his beloved Eloise sent to a convent and who was mutilated and forced to live out his life in a cloister. After all this pain, Abelard, Abelard also pens a series of six letters to Eloise in which he begins to describe to her in painful detail how we are created to love, how the real purpose of Jesus, both from manger and ministry in Galilee and finally, Golgotha, an empty tomb, was all to show us the limitless love that God possesses. For Abelard, it is not God waiting to be placated or satiated. It is not the Anselmian idea of satisfaction. God himself is on that cross. The same God that spoke the world into existence has now had that word become enfleshed in the body and the person of Jesus, and that God hangs on a cross for love. It is that God that is adopted and taken upon himself humanity, dressed in skin and flesh to become a brother to us all. Thinking about the wondrous miracle of Jesus, our brother, Athanasius, attempting to defy one of the earliest heresies of the church, coins the phrase, he cannot redeem what he has not assumed. In other words, if Jesus is 
to redeem humanity through this limitless love, then indeed he must assume humanity. And for Athanasius, the idea of assuming humanity comes with assuming risks. The very same risks that God assumed in the beginning when he created free moral agents is now being assumed by a Messiah who knows that when you preach love, companionship, and brotherhood and sisterhood, you typically will find a cross. One of Athanasius's contemporaries, Gregory of Nicentius, says that we ought to be like Christ. This is not an ethical maxim. This is the ideal of the Christian life for St. Gregory. He says, we ought to be like Christ, for he has become like us. Now, I know it's often easy for us. It's easy for us to romanticize Jesus, to talk about these ideas of the bonds of brotherhood in terms, well, in terms that never cease to be simply theological and that seldomly march into the realm of the practical. But what does it mean for Jesus to be created as your brother? What does it mean to have God as a sibling? Does that mean that our Savior experienced cold? Does it mean that he dealt with the same fear and loneliness that you may be experiencing today? Does that mean that he grew frustrated, tired, anxious, despondent? To clothe Jesus with humanity is to accept every single pitfall of existence and place it upon a God who responds to our limitations with boundless love. So Abelard might have had it right. Athanasius had a point. St. Gregory made a plausible explanation, the author of Hebrews is telling us that by clothing himself with humanity, Jesus ascended and became higher than the angels. And all of these people, all of these people write succinctly similar treatises because they recognize the temptation the temptation that all of us have to become like Peterson. To romanticize and idealize the Christian experience, or worse, to weaponize it. Too often, we face the lurking danger of Gnosticism, that idea that somehow Jesus only appeared to be human. That the real purpose of the cross and his existence isn't Brotherhood or sisterhood isn't relational, it's informational. That was the first heresy, my dear friend, that the Christian church had to contend against. But if not Gnosticism, then maybe, maybe we fall into the other trap, that of moralism. When we turn and we look at the Bible and we say, this isn't a story about love, it's a dictum on rules and regulations. Those two temptations that constantly befall the church must be counteracted with the idea of a fleshy God, a thick God, a God who experiences passion and pain, a God of pathos, a God clothed in humanity. And perhaps because the author of Hebrews has that clear idea of that type of God in mind, he writes in the end, as he is getting ready to close his sermon and exhort his audience. Therefore, verse chapter 12, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance, the race marked for us. The race marked for us. 
brotherhood and sisterhood, Jesus' fleshy existence as a way marker. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says that God needed to be human so that we may relate to him. He casts this vision of us floating down a river and the current begins to pick up and the river shifts from peaceful to roaring rapids. He says that if Jesus was anything else than human, as he is crying out, telling us, I can help you, we wouldn't be able to relate. It is because Jesus knows what it is to swim in that river. It is because Jesus knows what it is to navigate the rapids that he can call out and we can answer. But Lewis says Jesus also needed to be divine. For he couldn't just be on the boat with us. He needed to have a foot firmly cemented upon the ground. Otherwise, how could he pull us out? This is the mystery. The mystery that pushed Paul to write epistles. The mystery that continued to promote the idea of faith in a post-war Europe, the mystery that feeds our Sabbath school lessons and our sermons. It is the mystery of incarnation, the mystery of brotherhood and sisterhood, the mystery of Jesus, the fleshy God, as a way marker. Let us run with perseverance, that race marked for us, fixing our eyes only on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He cannot redeem that which he hasn't assumed, says Athanasius. And St. Gregory will say, let us be like Christ, for he has become like us. And Abelard will say, it is limitless love. And Hebrews say, he is pioneer, pioneer and perfecter. So today I say to you, Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Fix your eyes upon your brother, Christ. Joey, let's talk about Jesus as mm. our brother and this idea that the lesson de deals with um, as it weaves several Old Testament texts and a couple passages here in the epistle to the Hebrews. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a powerful passage. I mean, the Christology in here is so beautiful. And like you said, it shows a different side of Christ than at times Christians have shown to the world, right? Man, when you were telling that story of Eugene Peterson beating the boy and saying, his bully and saying, you know, say that you, you believe in Christ. I mean, that sounds so ridiculous, right? But but I was wondering, do we ever do that? Do we ever try to beat people into submission? Maybe not physically, but with our words to try to convince them to 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 see things the way that we mm. do. Do we do that? Yeah, that, that's what popped into my mind as you were telling that story. We do, don't we? It's, by the way, um, of, out of all the mainstream theories of atonement, or of, and atonement is simply talking about what Jesus actually came to do. Yeah. Abelard's view has often been the less po the least popular. Mm. The more popular ones are Anselm's idea of satisfaction and uh, the idea of ransom theory, or this earlier patristic idea that never really gets defined uh, as Christ the victor, right? Mm. The idea of this strong Jesus who is victorious. I'm not trying to say that that's not in scripture. You read Revelation and there is definitely the power and the majesty that Christ has. But more often than not, if you really read the, the New Testament, Jesus isn't really beating people into submission. Mm. Jesus is asking people to, to go on a journey with him and to see mm. and experience. And so I think often when when it comes to us as, as people of faith, we attempt 
to coerce people much in the same way, right, that Peterson is, a tr is attempting to convert his bully uh, through, through strength or through uh, force. And it seems like the Bible is saying what actually needs to happen is it needs to be a relationship grounded on the trust that you would have for a sibling that is going to allow you to go and follow and see and test and try and taste and see if the this way of life that Christ is compelling us to live actually makes sense for you. And the beauty of it throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is that the option is always there for human beings to say, I've seen, mm. I've tested, and I've tasted, yeah. and I want to do something else. That's There's so never coercion. Yeah, that's so true. And Jesus had opportunity, right? He had opportunity to stand up to bullies. And, and there are times that he does. He does stand up to bullies, like uh, when, when the, the, the leaders bring the woman Mm -hmm. and cast him at cast her at Jesus's feet in John chapter 8 right um, they were bullies and Jesus does challenge them but the way he does it he doesn't he doesn't set out to embarrass them he could have just stood there and and said you I know what you were doing last night and what you were mm -hmm. doing a week ago and you mm -hmm. he could have just embarrassed a lot of them but he doesn't do that right he does it he 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 navigates that situation in a way that convicts the bullies mm. and gives them the opportunity to change. Not, I don't know how many of them grew and changed from that instance, but he does give them that opportunity to change instead of trying to forcibly overpower them and show, look at me, I am right. so much better than you. Yeah. Yeah, we rarely see that from Jesus. There is this, this idea, right, of Christian victory uh, and exceptionalism and strength and might that I think starts really running through uh, Christian circles mm -hmm. uh, after Constantine becomes or com converts to Christianity. Um, and once Christianity becomes this mainstream political and military force, mm -hmm. there's this idea of the might and the power of Christianity. That, interestingly enough, is not part of the conversation during the first 300 years of the Christian movement. Yeah. Even when, as you're mentioning, Jesus is confrontational, the confrontational never, the confrontation never focuses on matching strength. Mm -hmm. The confrontation happens when Jesus shows us our weakness. Mm. The, the same story can be told, right, uh, in a text that we all like to point out when we're talking about the might of Jesus in the Gospels, and that is the cleansing of the temple. Mm -hmm. Now, we always focus on Jesus whipping people. What we fail to realize is that the what, what Christ does must have been so disconcerting that the temple police who is on the temple ground at that time, who is in, in tasked with protecting the resources of the temple and, and trying to keep the peace, the Roman garrison, which is overlooking the temple, the temple hill, they don't run down and stop Jesus. So whatever is happening there, it's not a, a show of force like we understand force. It's something different. And mm -hmm. we know that because the other powerful players in the arena don't respond to mm -hmm. Jesus with force. So there's something else happening there. Yeah. And what I think is happening there is as Jesus is moving away the temple, the money tables, what he is actually doing is he's opening a space for other people to experience worship. Mm -hmm. And so it's not this confrontation that is dealing with force or power or strength in the way that we think is strength. It's rather an opportunity to once again, come and see and taste and follow. Wow. Yeah, that's so true. I, I never thought of it that way. That if Jesus had really been how we typically picture this, where he's 
he's just kicking things over. He's whipping people with his whip. If Jesus were doing that, somebody would have stepped into that space and stopped him, right? They, it's not like they didn't have soldiers mm -hmm. there in Jerusalem. They, it's not like they didn't have temple guards there, but they don't. So maybe our image of how, of what happened there is a little bit off. And that even as Jesus was showing strength there, he wasn't showing violence mm -hmm. to the degree that we sometimes think of it. Um, yeah. You know, there's something about Christianity, especially when, when it comes out of um, how it comes out of the Gospels and in the book of Acts, that I think made the Jews uncomfortable and also made makes us uncomfortable because we always talk about how uh, the, the Jews had this improper vision of what the Messiah would be. Mm -hmm. Like they, they thought he would be a conquering king, mm -hmm. right? That he would be this triumphal, um, majestic being that, that would bring them back, bring them back to the days of David and where they would have rule over the entire world from their, from their holy hill in Jerusalem. That, that was their imagery. And we, we sort of, as Christians, we sort of scoff at that and say, that is not what the Messiah was meant mm. to be. And yet, a lot of times we remake mm -hmm. Christ in that image. Mm -hmm. We want, sort of want a Christ that is victorious. We expect him to be that way. And, and yet for the first several hundred years of Christianity existence, it was a minority religion. Mm -hmm. It was even minor, a, a, a minority sect of a minority religion right. of Judaism, right? Which was not very popular to begin with. And only later on, when it starts to spread, and then and then it becomes institutionalized within the within governmental systems, and that's that's when it it goes into power. And yet, what I hear from myself, and sometimes from larger society, is that's the vision of Christianity that we want. Mm. We want a Christianity that is dominant in culture, right? We want a Christianity that is 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 powerful and is is the accepted religion mm. and is the one that that um that has more authority than any other religion right we that's the christianity that we long for mm. and yet that's not the christianity that jesus had that yeah. jesus demonstrated yeah i think i think you know what i think that is if if we're going to going to share an indictment about a particular view of Christianity uh, that is often linked with the, these ideas of nationalism, that would be it, right? Mm -hmm. The idea of, well, we live in a Christian nation and we want our nation to be ruled by certain Christian principles. The problem is Christianity was never constructed to be the dominating societal mm -hmm. force. That's not how Christianity was formed. Yeah. It, it Actually, Christianity is, it doesn't know how to be the majority dominating powerful force. Christianity always functions best when it's countercultural, when it's moving obscure in the shadows. Because when it's moving obscure in the shadows, when it's countercultural, it actually begins to live up to its ideals of creating this kingdom that's upside down. Yeah. Now, the problem I think with us is we're not comfortable with that. And we've never, as you've mentioned, we've never been comfortable with that. Mm. So as Abelard and Anselm are discussing on, on atonement, there's another idea that gets very quickly moved into the territory of heresy, right? So we know that uh, the, Christ, the early Christian church is dealing with Gnosticism in essence, Jesus wasn't really a human being that came to suffer. Jesus was actually this teacher. There's this idea of docetism saying, well, he wasn't really human. It was like he was wearing this, this meat costume. Um, and then there's this other, uh, responding to that, there's this other idea that never really catches on, which is called pater passionism. Mm -hmm. um, and that comes from a collection of two words in Latin, pater meaning father and passionism meaning the passion. And it states that if we really take the Bible at its word, then the then God the Father himself hung on the cross. It's mm. not this, this idea mm. where God is saying, no, I'm too strong or I'm too good, I'm too powerful mm. to hang. It's actually God the Father who is experiencing pain. And what the reason why that 
particular thought never gains any traction is because people were very uncomfortable with a weak God, Mm. particularly as this weak God is competing to become the deity of an empire that is built on conquering and power. Mm. And so as long as we view conquering in, in terms of numbers or territory or getting bigger, Um, we're never going to be comfortable with this idea of Jesus as a sibling because that idea obviously doesn't fly with our our conceptions of what growth and power and might and attraction are. Yeah, and and yet that's what the the author of Hebrews seems to be saying is that Jesus is God. Mm -hmm. God the Father, Jesus, they are one. And so it, it makes perfect sense. I, I never even thought of it that way. Man, Miguel, you're blowing my mind that the Father was hanging on the cross if Jesus, and so was the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. was hanging on the cross if Jesus was hanging on the cross. That 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 experience was shared by the by the by the Trinity. And that God, man, that God made himself weak. And we're very uncomfortable with the thought of a weak God, or even one that appears to be weak. Mm-hmm. Um, that that makes us uncomfortable. And yet that is the message of the gospel, which is why the Greeks thought it was foolishness, right? right. That's what Paul writes, because they're saying, how can God die? Mm-hmm. God cannot die. What you're saying is ridiculous. He would not be God if he's dead. And, and we, we, we agree with, with Paul and what he says and in, in theory. And yet when it comes to practice, we're very uncomfortable with the fact that God, the God is weak enough to die. Mm. Wow. Wow. Yeah, you know, that I think is is one of the problems. And that's why I love this concept of Jesus as a sibling. Because the Greeks have problems, as you mentioned, with the idea of God dying. They also have problems with the idea of God feeling, right? Mm. The whole Greek religious system was built on removing the pathos, the emotive reactions that God might have had. God had to be completely driven by reason, and for the Greeks, reason and emotion didn't didn't gel. Um, we can disagree with that. I actually think that reason and emotion are two sides of the same coin, but uh, for the Greeks, their God couldn't experience not only death, but feeling. Mm. And here in Hebrews, you have, you have this move, this revolutionary movement where the author is co-opting their language and saying, guess what? God feels. And God feels uh, by becoming weak, by becoming less than the angels. And it is through this becoming less than the angels that he is now exalted. Wow. Completely, completely, radically new. And I think the Greeks would have had problems with that. The Jews would have had problems with that. I think we have problems with that. (laughs) 2,000 years later, the idea of a weak God. Yeah, because honestly, I mean, when you were telling the story of Peterson and he finally stands up to the bully, there was a part of me that cheered, mm. right? I mean, we're, we're not supposed to be advocating violence and I never want my daughters to be fighting somebody, right? But man, there's something about if someone's a bully, we need to stand up to them. And if that means punching them in the face, then so be it. There is a side of us that actually revels in the violence, especially when we feel like it's justified. Mm-hmm. When the violence is justified, when it's standing up to a bully, when it's stopping somebody who's um, oppressing other people, we, we feel like, man, we can cheer on that kind mm. of violence. That's strength. That is what shows strength. And then how do we reconcile that with Jesus saying, when somebody slaps you on one cheek, Oof. turn the other cheek. When somebody forces you to go a mile, which they could, right? Roman soldiers mm-hmm. could do that. You go too. Basically saying, these oppressors, these Romans that you hate so much, submit to them. Mm. How do we deal with that? How do we reconcile those two disparate images of uh. wanting this powerful God? And then we have Jesus communicating a message of really nonviolence. Mm. How do we handle that? That, that I think is is a question that's at the core of what I'd like to consider a return to our Adventist heritage. Mm-hmm. So my predecessor here, 
uh, whom I still talk to. Uh, we're having uh, a beverage, a caffeinated beverage, um, a few weeks ago. And we're just talking about not only how our local church uh, has shifted, but we're also talking about how Adventism has shifted. Mm. And I asked in, in this shifting seismic moving that is Adventism, what he thought was the biggest difference. And I was expecting him to, to go back to one of these tried and true things that we debate upon, uh, whether it be women's ordination or religious liberty or church polity. He actually didn't talk about any of those. He says that in his lifetime, the biggest shift that he has seen, uh, not only with our lay people, but uh, with ministers and academics, is this relinquishing of our Anabaptist pacifist mm. tradition mm. to adopt a more Thomist, uh, and he, he uh, using Thomas Aquinas, who develops this idea of a ju of just war. When is violence justified? And he says that I, that for wow. him is a shift in in Adventism, where we as a as a church come out of this Anabaptist strand of the Reformation mm. that is known for its pacifist ideals, and within a span of fifty years, we've changed, and wow. now we're saying, oh no no. Violence under some circumstances is justified. And I know it's tempting to talk about uh, should we go to war or shouldn't we go to war or what are our ideas on self-defense and stuff like that. I think it, can, it hits much closer to home when you look at the discussions that are had on any number of Adventist boards, uh, online boards, mm. and the, the anger wow. and the vitriol and the violence wow. that, that is exhibited there from our friends on a particular website that leans to the right and our friends on a particular website that leans to the left. When you hear the amount of violence mm. and vitriol in those comments, you begin to wonder mm. and how both sides, by the way, feel persecuted and how both sides are advocating violence, not physical, but verbal and political um, as a way to counteract persecution. Mm. And then you hear this, this Jesus who is saying, you are made strong in my weakness. Mm -hmm. If you go one if if you were asked to go one mile, go two, and not only go two but carry stuff, um, it it doesn't quite compute. And I think it it we are at at a critical point, at least in our denomination, where we can either lean into these ideas that link much more closely to Christian Christian nationalism, mm -hmm. or we can recover our heritage which is always attempting to counteract violence with the Prince of Peace. Wow. Wow. So much to unpack there. But this idea of um, that, that at our roots, Adventism had those same Anabaptist leanings of, of nonviolence, right? Um, you know, the Adventism came about during... Um, during the period of the of, of the Civil War, right? So this was an active discussion within Adventism. Do we participate in this war that the most of, the majority of Adventists were from the North? Um, to a certain extent, they felt like it was justified, right? Um, freeing the slaves. We had strong anti-slavery leanings in the beginning of our our, our movement, and and so that was a that was a real poignant discussion. I, James, I remember reading articles mm -hmm. about James White who wrote about this. Um, and then we have the heritage of Desmond Doss, who was a conscientious objector who said, I cannot carry a gun, but he he won the Medal of Honor for his bravery because of how much he in, endangered himself to save his fellow soldiers. Um, we have those, those are the stories that we carry. And yet, when it comes to everyday practice, a lot of times we practice a violent form mm -hmm. of Adventism, using violence in order to make a point. Maybe not physical violence, hopefully not physical violence, but violence with our words and how we, we feel like 
as if this has ever worked, where we, we, we feel like we can overpower somebody with the, our arguments, with our violent arguments, embarrass them, and then they'll say, okay, I surrender, I now agree with you. Like that has ever happened in the yeah. history of any argument uh, that somebody has said, oh, you've embarrassed me, now I will agree with you. That's never happened. And yet that's what we do just to show, just to prove ourselves right. And yet that seems to also connect to a, a certain level of Christology, which, which, um, which the author of Hebrews is talking about, that that was never God's way. Mm -hmm. Because if that were God's way, if God's way was to overpower people and take with violence what belongs to him, what was justified to him, then he would not have come as a baby. He would have not have died on the cross. He would have come as a conquering king like the Jews expected. He would have overthrown his enemies. He would have destroyed Satan. Forget all of this sacrifice and pain and suffering that he had to go through. And yet that was not hmm. God's way. Hmm. And yet many times that's the way we want God to lead. Oh, that is so true. It's so powerfully stated. I love you hearkening back to this early Adventist heritage, right? You hear uh, James and Uriah Smith as he's the editor of the Review and Herald, and you hear them passionately writing against slavery and believing that somehow they can actually appeal to human conscience mm. and that through the pen and through paper, people will change. Um, and then and then this idea, because even in this golden age of, of Adventist pacifism, and I, I would actually venture to say Adventist healthy political engagement, there weren't nine different newspapers where you went and talked about with people that agreed with you about other, about how bad other people were. There was one. It was you wrote to the Review and Herald yeah. and you they published and it was it was no holds bar, everybody sending in their ideas, their papers, their positions. But knowing that we had this shared link at, as, as Adventists, and that was, I think, much more closely related to the Jesus that become, that even sees, right, the Pharisees and the Sadducees as siblings. Yeah, he has some harsh words for them, but the harsh words are always mitigated by this heart-wrenching care. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that killed the prophets, how often would I have wanted to carry you under my wings mm. like a hen carries its chicks? Wow. There was no anger, no fury, no accusations of, of the Pharisees and Sadducees being antichrists or being the beast or being immoral. It was Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Mm. And I think often when, when we see, when we recover this idea, right, this, this notion of seeing each other as siblings mm. wow. uh, and seeing God as uh, Jesus as a sibling, we tend to change uh, the tone of our language with one another. So is that how we bridge this gap? Is this how we move away from the violent tendencies that we have of expressing our views and being able to share them with each other in a way that we can still disagree and yet still love each other? Is, is, is that the first step to see each other as siblings? Yeah. I think so. I, so I, I think, Joey, both of us, and, and I wanted, I'm so glad that you asked this question because I wanted to close uh, our time together. We know that there's a lot of people that watch all over the country. Um, and we know that there's a lot of people that come from different schools. And we know that in Adventism, the Melinda University Church has a particular reputation. And so I just, I wanna, I wanna talk to our friends out there, wherever you are theologically, whether you're pro-women's ordination or against women's ordination, whether you're pro-mask mandate or against mask mandate, pro-vaccine or anti-vaxxer, whether you believe that uh, the, a certain fellow Christian church is going to persecute us at the end, or whether you believe that the Antichrist is anything that you would put in your life in the place of Jesus, whether you believe that us as ministers in this church have sold out 
or, we, or you believe that we're courageously crafting a way forward for Adventism, I want to say this. We are all siblings. We are all related to one another. We are all trying simply to follow the, the one who pioneered and is going to is going to consummate our faith. Wow. Well said, Miguel. I don't know how I would <laughs> improve on what you said. That was so beautiful. It's true. If we would just see each other as siblings and recognize that, yes, we can disagree, but we can still respect one another. And most of all, to see that God loves every single one of us, how would that change the ways that we talk to each other, mm. the way that we post to each other on comment boards or on social media, the way that we roll our eyes or don't roll our eyes when we talk about others, how would that change our interactions and the way that we love? Mm. That's a question for all of you to ponder upon. We're out of time. Joey, would you mind us, would you mind sending us off with a word of prayer? Good and gracious God. Thank you for being a God that doesn't elect to use violence because there are so many times that you would have been justified in using violence against me, hmm. against the people I love. We've made choices that have justified 10 times over. You rejecting us, you throwing us into the burning waste heap you walk, brushing your hands and walking away from us, and yet you don't. You didn't. Instead, you came down, and you died, and you took, took the pain and, and, and the violence that we deserved and took it upon yourself, died, died in our place. Help us to have that kind of love, that kind of compassion for our brothers and sisters, our fellow siblings um, that you love so much. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear friends, trite as it may sound, we do love you and we pray that God be with you until we meet again. Have a wonderful rest of your Sabbath. Mm -hmm.